don't just create information that is going to sit on a laptop or is going to be filed in a desk. You've got to look yourself in the eye and say, okay, is this actually having any kind of impact on the field? Will it impact on performance? And is it something that the players and the coaches will truly value? Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by the first sports scientist in the English Premier League, Chris Barnes. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, let you know what's going on and what is new in my neck of the woods, and then we will jump into this episode because I'm telling you, my friends, it is awesome. Now, what's new? Kind of a big week last week. Lots going on. Kind of the pinnacle of the week, if you will, was my daughter, Kendall, turning 10. Obviously, bittersweet. It's crazy to think of my baby as being 10. I still remember when we brought her home. She was all of six pounds, carrying her around the house in the crook of my arm like she was a football. So just crazy to think about. And I had a lot of people ask me last week, well, does that make you feel old? And on the one hand, you know, just knowing that she's 10, that that's just strange, I think is probably the best way to put it, because it doesn't seem like it's been 10 years. So I don't think in that sense, it makes me feel old. And I definitely don't feel old in the sense that I don't feel my age. I think that's probably the best way to put it. I don't feel like uh, I am aging faster than I should be. If that makes sense, I feel like I'm pretty youthful, got a lot of energy for the age that I'm at 42. So you know, not necessarily, but man, just crazy to think about her being 10 because she is absolutely the light of my life. Love that girl. Just thinking about how much she's grown up over the last 10 years, how much she has forced me to grow up in a positive way. So just nothing but good things last week and just super excited for her, her future. She is such a bright little girl and I can't wait to see, you know, what the next 10 years amount to for her. So That was kind of a big deal. We did our standard pizza movie night. As you know, we are going through the entire Marvel collection in order. So last week was, I would say, pretty unanimously our family's favorite movie, which is Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) Not everybody agrees with us on that. Some people think it's a little bit too cheeky or they try and be too funny, but I don't know. All of us love it. We laugh. Great fight scenes. Just awesome, awesome movie. So we enjoyed that. We're going through the WandaVision episodes, so if you're a Marvel person and you don't have Disney+, Plus, I would highly recommend. Shout out the 12 bucks. Watch those. Watch The Mandalorian. I think it's worth it. Last weekend, we had Kendall's birthday party, so her birthday was Tuesday. Over the weekend, we had her party, so we went roller skating, which sounds totally 80s and felt totally 80s, but man, it was so much fun. All the, the girls in her are kind of in our neighborhood that are her age or into this right now. They either roller skate or roller blade. So it was awesome. We got there at like 11 in the morning, had the entire joint to ourselves for an hour. And, you know, you just take breaks, right? You get tired after a while. So we would skate and then they had some pizza and then they would skate a little bit more and they'd have some ice cream and then they'd skate and we'd open presents. So just an awesome afternoon. They had so much fun. It was just great. She just has a great little group of friends around here. So that makes me feel good too. Like I grew up in the country. The nearest kid my age was probably miles down the road. So it's awesome that she's got so many great little girls just in the neighborhood that she can go and hang out with and that, you know, are just really good girls for her to be around. So that was awesome. Lots of sportsing this last weekend. Cade, 
Uh, I mentioned this last week. He got his first two buckets in a basketball game. So now I think he thinks you just get a bucket every game, <laughs> So which is a good thing, right? He's not afraid to shoot it. But yeah, got another bucket the other day, like this impossible shot behind the, the right side of the backboard, which if you're a righty is very, very hard. I don't know how he got it to go in, but... Yeah, man. So he got another bucket. He was super excited, had a soccer game indoor the next day, scored his first goal of indoor. So, you know, pretty successful weekend for him. Kendall's team, not quite as good. You know, they're just, (laughs) I wish I could say they had a little bit more talent than they do, but man, she's trying really hard. I love that she's kind of into it and she's getting fired up, not just now, but also for the upcoming spring season. So she's loving that. So it was a good weekend there sent out all my diplomas and CEUs for the complete coach cert last week. So very excited to get that out the door. That has been kind of this looming project and probably shouldn't have been as hard <laughs> as it was. I kind of delayed it and delayed it and delayed it because I wanted everything to be perfect. I got everything kind of where I wanted it to. And then it was just labor intensive from that point between getting everything printed, hand stuffing everything, but excited to have that crossed off. I've been getting more requests lately for people to talk or for from people to talk about the book that I am reading. So I've talked about a couple books that I've read in the past couple weeks. My big one was Lifespan, and that was actually a two week read because it's pretty intense as far as like talking about DNA and the genome and a lot of things that I'm familiar with, but not necessarily super educated on. But felt like there was some interesting stuff in there. The guy definitely has some unique thoughts on aging and how long we can live. So if you're interested in that, or if you're looking to uh, stretch the limits of your knowledge a little bit, I think you would enjoy it. And then last thing for last week is, I know we mentioned this on last week's show, man, I'm into this Cobra Kai show. I know I'm a little late to the party. They've already got like three seasons out, but Jess and I have been diving in on those. I think we watched (laughs) like six episodes in the last two days. So that was last week. As far as this week goes, it's a very kind of miscellaneous week. And I feel like once every four to six weeks, I have one of these where it's just like catch up on all kinds of random stuff. So I've got a podcast interview lined up later this week with the one and only Joe Kin. Excited to bring him on the show, see what he's up to. Always a great interview. Training, you know, my training's been going really well. If you follow me on the gram, I'm doing this breakdown essentially of what my training sessions are looking like and why I choose certain exercises because I feel like on the internet these days it's really easy to demonstrate these you know 50 different variations that you could possibly do but you only actually do like five of them so I'm going the opposite route and I'm you know taking this like deeper dive into well why do I choose the exercises that I do how are they of value to me what is my goal what is my intent and I feel like hopefully you're going to get a lot more out of that than just seeing the 1,000th whatever squat variation for the month. So I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that. So if you're not following me there, Rob Train Systems, I'm going to break down basically the next two or three weeks worth of training and explain why I'm doing stuff. And I think probably either on iFastU or somewhere else, I'm going to do like a full breakdown of the entire program and the entire intent all in one big video. So Something to look forward to there if you're an IFSU member. Just random activities. Obviously, the kids have sports going on. Cade is starting at the Ninja Zone. So he did like a trial class last week, and I just love it. 
because sometimes as a parent, it's hard to tell your children what to do when it comes to activities and coaching. And, you know, we go down in the basement and mess around sometimes with like tumbling and push-ups and things of that nature. But man, he did a trial class last week and absolutely loved it. So he's got that. And then kind of my 10x activity for this week is getting this webinar done. So I've got a video or two that I'm going to create as a webinar to generate interest just in what I'm doing as a coach to generate interest into the complete coach certification. So yeah, I want to get that done this week. There's a lot of steps that go into this. The creating of the actual webinar itself is probably the easiest part, but there's a lot of other pieces that revolve around that to get that ready. So I will talk to you more about that as I get it done. But yeah, that's kind of what is new in my neck of the woods. So Without any further ado, actually with a very small amount of of ado, we're going to do a quick break and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Chris Barnes. It seems like almost every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. The exact progressions, regressions and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. And last but not least, I've added an entire section on my assessment process and how to use that to write programs faster and more effectively than ever before. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now, here's the thing. Spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in March 2021. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Over the past 25 years, Chris Barnes has built and managed multidisciplinary support teams at the elite level of several sports, including soccer, rugby league, and basketball. In 1996, he was the first full-time sports scientist in the English Premier League establishing Middlesbrough FC as a pioneer in what was a new discipline at the time. In subsequent years, the model introduced at Middlesbrough was replicated at many other clubs, and today sports science is at the core of operations across soccer in the UK. In this show, Chris and I really take a deep dive into the start of sports science as we know it. We discuss how he went about introducing sports science as a whole with his club and the numerous struggles that he had along the way. We talk about the difference between data and insight, and why good practitioners rely on the latter. And last but not least, we talk about the role of a coach, and why he's focused on building more all-around coaches 
versus specialists. This is just a fantastic episode, and I felt like we were really just scratching the surface of Chris's knowledge. But enough for me, let's do this. Chris, thanks so much for coming on here today. Really excited to have you on the show. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for inviting me on, Mike. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm Chris Barnes. I have, for the past 25 years, worked in professional and elite sport. But my career goes back a lot further than that. I'm actually an industrial chemist by training. <laughs> okay. I left, yeah. <laughs> I left school at 16. The place that I was born and brought up, it's so industrial. There were steel works, there's chemical works and everything there. And everybody left school and got a trade. Very mm. few people went to college or university at the time. And so I did just that. I, and I trained as an industrial chemist at, in the steelworks. And after about eight years, I woke up one day, having done a night shift, and thought, okay, can I do this till I'm 60 or 65? And decided not, and went to the local careers office. And to cut a long story short, they helped me apply to go to university because I'd been to night school and I had qualifications that got me in. And I studied what was PE at mm. the time. So that was the start of the journey. And I'm not going to walk you through every stage because we'll be here for, we won't start <laughs> the interview. <laughs> but I've had a number of careers in, I worked for the health service in health promotion on a coronary heart disease prevention project. I worked in further education, which is the 16 to 19 years bracket in the UK for six years, teaching sports science. And then I worked in higher education in the university sector for another five years in a university in Middlesbrough teaching exercise physiology. And that's when I got an approach out of the totally out of the blue from a guy who I'd done a bit of research with. And he was a member of the medical board at Middlesbrough Football Club. And the medical board had been charged by the chairman to create a strategy for sports science and sports medicine. The chairman had been speaking with an Italian player they had signed and decided that this is the way he was going to drive the club forward. Mm. And the medical board knew medicine, but they didn't have a clue about science. And Fortunately or unfortunately for them, I was the closest thing locally they had. I'd done some research, as I say, with this guy. And we had a conversation and it led to another one and it led to meetings and blah, 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 blah. I got involved in a project to build a brand new training ground for the football club, the English Premier League club, and to create a department and a culture and a curriculum for the players at the club, which was a fantastic challenge. So I joined the club full-time to do this, a fantastic challenge. But the problem was there wasn't there wasn't a script because this was new, this was different. Right. Even in the Premier League, which is seen as being forward-thinking, this was pretty revolutionary. So we went in there with what we knew, which was essentially what you taught at university. And I replicated a lot of what we did at university and tried to drop it into... Premier League football, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in time, but the consequences of that sometimes were funny, yeah. sometimes <laughs> were disastrous, but overall, I'd like to think that what we helped to do was create 
the first step in the introduction of the way that we look at football from a scientific perspective in England. I love it. I love it. So tell me, what originally led you to the world of physical preparation, right? I think you said you were an industrial chemist. So how, like, what got you excited about this path? Well, I've always played football. I've always been active. I'm your classic case of I, I could pretend that I got injured and fell out of the game because most people that end up in sports science or physio do that. Right. I simply wasn't good enough. I think actually mentally I wasn't tough enough mm. as a kid. So I had trials with a lot of professional teams uh, and I spent some time with a couple of big name teams, but I wasn't good enough. So I played a lot of reasonably high-level amateur football. So I always had an interest in, in the game. When I worked in further education, I did a lot of coaching football, actually most successfully in volleyball. My girls' team were national champions in volleyball. And so physical performance, fitness, was always something that was a part of my life and something that I had a huge interest in. But obviously when you're working at the steelworks, it's part of your your non-work life. Yeah. And there's so many people, I'm sure, uh, today that are in that same situation and they can't see where there might be an opportunity to pull it into your your whole life. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for me, that few years that I spent in university and then being given the opportunity to move into the education side of physical performance, I guess, started to bring me a lot closer to this thing that's a real passion in my life. The opportunity to start to work in professional sport was the biggest piece of luck that anybody could ever hope for. It was totally by chance. I, it was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I think if I hadn't fielded that phone call, if I hadn't have been free, the guy probably would have moved on and spoken to somebody else. So the journey would never have happened. Right. So an awful lot of things came together in a way that certainly for me has made my life so much richer and so much more enjoyable doing the thing that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I love that. So last but not least, and I always ask this question because I think it's helpful for young coaches to hear about the journey that people such as yourself have been on. So obviously that was your first stop, but it definitely wasn't your last. So could you give us an idea of some of the stops that you made along the way? In professional sport. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I've gone through, I guess, in a very whistle-stop way, the journey through life, if you like. The move into professional sport at the time was quite a risk for me because, first of all, it, it was a culture and an environment that I didn't know. And at the time, I had two small children. My wife was working at a local university. And with a pair of us working there, we had a good life and we had security. I had a pension. And I think as everybody is aware, you know, the world of professional sports is a little bit risky. Yeah. And it's particularly risky when you go into it, not really knowing what you're going to be doing tomorrow, <laughs> never mind in three months, six months or nine months. Right. A big, big changing point, though, if you like, came. So I joined as Middlesbrough Football Club. I joined them in 1997. In 2009, we parted ways. And 2009 also, it was a huge decision for me to make was, do I look for another job full-time working with a professional sports club, professional soccer club, or 
do I have a go at going self-employed on a consultative basis, not having a clue how to set up a business, not having a clue <laughs> where I would look for for work. But at the same time, my wife had reached a little bit of a ceiling in her particular job. And it was created by me because I was keeping us bound to this particular geographic area of the country. And so I said to her, okay, I'm going to have a go at this self-employment consultancy work. And this then frees you to apply for a job wherever you wish to go. I'd actually found work with Newcastle United, which was about 40 miles from where we were living and was loving it, really enjoying it. But then Liz, my wife, got a job a couple of hundred miles away. And so we transitioned. I had to leave Newcastle. We moved down into the Midlands. And that really triggered a few opportunities, which definitely changed changed me. So first of all, I went into another Premier League club, West Bromwich Albion. And the remit here was always the same, was to help them establish sports science at the core of the working practice of the club. But also through the guy who was the doc there at the time, Mark Gillette, I got the opportunity to work with the Great Britain basketball team leading into the London 2012 Olympics. And then through other people who I knew and developed conversations with. I started working in rugby with the England Rugby League team leading into the 2013 World Cup. So the toolkit that I had, I began to take and cross boundaries and begin to work in other sports with which I wasn't so familiar as I was with football. And so I started, you know, this was a huge change, really, starting to learn about the realities of running your own business. So if, if professional sport isn't insecure enough, working in professional sport as a gun for hire, if you like, or <laughs> a, uh, a consultant is pretty scary. Yeah. And the last 11 years... I've certainly had so many ups and downs. The, the reality of the situation is, you know, if I'm going into a place to try and establish systems and structures and to ensure that you've got the right people doing the right things at the right time in the right place, once you think you've arrived at that point, then your job's done. So, you, of course, you're going to move on to yeah. the next opportunity. And so in the last 11 years, yeah, I've worked with probably seven or eight English soccer clubs, in various capacities. I've worked with national associations, Turkey, Slovakia, Iceland, for example. I've worked with UEFA and CAF, so the European and the African Confederation of Football. I've done work with Chinese clubs. I've had the good fortune to travel to South America. And as we were talking about just before we came on air, I'm currently involved in a project in Nigeria, in Africa. So the experiences, the opportunities and the experiences that have come my way have just, they've expanded my horizons. They have opened my eyes to different cultures, different people, different ways of working. But it's just made my life so, so much richer Yeah, in, for that, sure. in that respect. For sure. So like you've alluded to, you know, in a lot of ways, you kind of brought sports science into elite and professional sport. And I think one thing that I'm always fascinated by is how things evolve over time. So I would love it if you would set the stage for us and maybe give us the landscape of professional soccer when you got there and, and what it looked like as you started to bring sports science in. 
actually just add one more piece to this. And what did the decision-making process look like at that point in time? I was employed by the chairman of Middlesbrough Football Club. So in essence, one day I walked into the club and the chairman introduced me to the coaching team. Now, the coaching team at the club, in the club at the time consisted of three of probably the most successful football players the UK has ever produced. So you had a guy called Brian Robson, who was Captain Marvel for England for many years, Captain of Manchester United, millions of schoolboys hero. Viv Anderson played 800 professional games, all at the highest level, won two European Cups with Nottingham Forest, first black player for England, and then Gordon McQueen who is a Scottish centre-half who played again so many games at the highest level. I think he was the youngest captain of Scotland. So these guys were as credible as you can get in terms of their football calibre. And they had this bloke imposed upon them by the chairman. He said, oh, by the way, this is Chris Barnes. He's a sports scientist and he's going to help us run this club differently. <laughs> so you don't, you don't, it doesn't take much imagination to think, okay, how, how well this was received. What Brian did to begin with was, okay, part of my role was obviously taking the pre-training, pre-match warm-ups, but in training, he put me in training. So basically to test and mm-hmm. try me out. And I, I mentioned earlier that I'd, I'd played a bit of football. I'm not a professional, <laughs> I wasn't a professional footballer. And by that time, I think I was 31, 32 years old. I wasn't the youngest kid right. around the place. But anyway, for the first six months, they had me in training. And I learned very quickly where, <laughs> what I, I knew what I could and what I couldn't do. And there was an awful lot more that I couldn't do in the company of these guys. But I think I showed enough that... I got at least a little bit of respect from these guys. But then the first few months are actually not about introducing sports science in any way, shape or form. They're about establishing relationships because without relationships, you can't sell anything to these people. And remember, I've got a group of coaches who've never been exposed to this, but also a whole squad of players who've never been exposed to this. And you think more recently, at least when somebody's going into a place relatively new or relatively fresh, they're probably going to be faced with people who have been exposed to what it is they're trying to deliver. And okay, they'll have been exposed to good and bad. But in the case of myself, nobody had seen anything or any of it. So in professional sport, you do spend a lot of time on the road. So you spend a lot of time in the company of these people and there's a real opportunity there just to try and understand what makes them tick, understand what their philosophy around football actually is, what drives them, what questions they truly do want to know the answers to. And so in the, in the early days, we really, really did take things slowly. In a crazy way, what we brought into the club was what I knew from university. And what we were teaching in university was basically based on the knowledge of endurance sport at the time. So if you wanted a test to play, you put them on a treadmill with a metabolic cart and right. measured VO2 max and took blood samples to measure lactate at certain points. And we had a fantastic metabolic cart and a great big treadmill and we had reflatron and equipment for measuring blood lactate levels and post-game creatine kinase levels and all the sciencey stuff and you know we created an awful lot of knowledge and we created an awful lot of information but for people who are working in sport 
yes, it's good to create information and it's good to create this knowledge. And perhaps in the early days that was necessary and essential. But a sports scientist actually has to find a way to translate that information into something that is meaningful in practice on the field. And I think in the early days, reflecting upon that, we got the balance totally wrong. We created a lot of information, but the impact of that information wasn't great. So hopefully over the subsequent period, and obviously it's quite a long time, we've redressed that balance somewhat. So now I am very much a believer in, okay, don't just create information that is going to sit on a laptop or is going to be filed in a desk. You've got to look yourself in the eye and say, okay, is this actually having any kind of impact on the field? Will it impact on performance? And is it something that the players and the coaches will truly value? Yeah, I love that. And and I think something that's interesting is, you know, nowadays I feel like sports science is very commonplace, right? Across professional sport, you're even seeing it at the collegiate and sometimes even the high school level. But you were starting a whole new trend here. So how did you go about starting to introduce this stuff without overwhelming the athletes? Very badly. <laughs> um, because there is... There is definitely a trick to introducing things. If you like, I'll draw a contrast here between the way I went about it at Middlesbrough and this project that we've got going at the moment in Nigeria. So scientists have a habit of creating, uh, they're, they're charged with creating information. And unfortunately, a lot of this information is quite complex and complicated. And players athletes and coaches are for the most part they are super intelligent people they're really really clever people and I think an awful lot of people who don't work in sport really don't grasp that but they they are very very bright but if a scientist comes to a player or a coach with information that is outside of their normal area or point of reference and they try to present something that you do require some underpinning knowledge to understand and they don't get it. The natural reaction of a coach or an athlete or a player is to reject it. And for certain, an awful lot of this information that in the early days I was taking to these coaches and trying to have conversations with the players about, and the players were really, really, they were so kind with me in that they would tolerate me, I guess. (laughs) But quite clearly what I was doing was I, I, I misjudged my entry point. So the entry point I was going at required some pre-knowledge or understanding or education. And I also misjudged the calibration of how quickly you can, how quickly you can introduce this information and take them on a journey. And so wind the clock forward 25 years and you know, we're doing this project where we're again we're starting from scratch with a football club in Nigeria, and I think from all of the mistakes that I've made over the years, I think we are much more effectively introducing sports science into that country because we've got the introduction point right, the entry point right, and the rate at which we are going to ramp up the information that we introduce will be appropriate to the environment that we're working. I love that. Man, that's a complete answer. So 
Something you alluded to, and, and I think this is fascinating because I've had numerous sports science, scientists on the show over the years, and I think one thing that they're all striving to do is make sports science more effective. And, and you alluded to this both before the show, in the show, this idea of just collecting data, right? Like more is better, more data, more data. But you talk so much about how important it is to have insights into that piece of data. So yeah. could you elaborate on that? How do you go about doing that? Are there questions that you ask yourself? You know, how do you go about that process? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question. And you're, you're absolutely right. It is something that I I have a real, a real interest in and a real passion for. So I've said it and, and you've said it yourself. Uh, in today's world of sports science in professional sport, people just create information. They create a huge amount of knowledge. And so two things. First of all, I mentioned it earlier. We have to develop the capacity to distill this information down to simple and simplistic messages. The second thing is we need to know, we need to learn when to shut up. So in any sporting environment, the coach is king. I mentioned earlier, coaches are super bright. They really are. But in that environment, we sometimes get carried away with thinking that we're an awful lot more important than we are. So we create information that we think might be valuable for a coach. But he's also getting information from players. And he's getting information from his other coaches. And he might be getting information from the chairman or the owner or the media and other places. And very often, there's too many people fighting for this space. So what we've got to do is make a judgment call as to whether the message we want to give today is actually important. Because, you know, most training days, training goes well. And what we see in the information we collect is what we might expect and what we planned. So do we really need to tap the coach on the shoulder to show him we're there because that's all we're doing, <laughs> to say, training was good today, coach, so-and-so did such-and-so. It doesn't matter. The time when we should be tapping the coach on the shoulder is when we see something either unexpected or something that sits outside of what we would normally expect. And then if it's a single player, actually the first conversation is with that single player. Mm. Look, we've seen that today's training went a little bit different to normal. If you've got a relationship with that player, you have a conversation. And it could be that, okay, the player's got problems at home or didn't sleep particularly well the night before. Or there could be any number of reasons why, unfortunately, the player hasn't performed in the way that they normally would in training. So, okay, we'll have a conversation with the player and we'll try and find a solution and we'll try and help the player. But you don't bother the coach with that information because... There's no need for the coach to know. If we see information whereby we see in a number of players or in the whole of the squad, the information is outside of what we might expect. So we've done 30% more work than we'd planned or expected, then yeah, for sure. Have a conversation with the coach and mention that point. And we look to the next couple of days as to how we can maybe address this and just bring things back into normal. But then... And this is all about the building relationships with a coach. Guaranteed, most coaches, when you have these conversations, will tell you where to go, <laughs> usually in two or three words, once they've heard what you say. But most coaches, if not all coaches, have the 
emotional intelligence to go away and think about it and digest it and reflect. And don't be surprised if tomorrow what you are suggesting might result as a consequence has actually been implemented. And it was all the coach's idea, and that's great, and that's how the world should work. So find that point and do that. And different coaches, are, you know, there are different times to engage with them. I've worked with coaches that will engage at 6.30 while they're in the gym on the morning before the day starts. I worked with one coach who's a fantastically experienced coach, quite an old coach as well. It was, it was an interesting experience, but the time to engage with him was in the dressing room after training when he's in the shower <laughs> sorting himself out before he'll, he'll go into his media session. But it's about knowing the coach and knowing the best time, the best place, and the kind of information that they want to receive. But don't be afraid to say nothing because if things are going well, they're going well. You don't need to try and tell everybody that you're doing your job. If you're doing your job, they'll know that. Yeah. Okay. So first off, that's just a brilliant point. And I think young coaches need to hear that because I think they always feel this need to prove themselves. I know I was like that to show, oh, look what I'm doing. Look at all the great stuff that I've got going on. But I think the, the second point that you made that was brilliant, and I think people need to hear this, is you don't have to go to the coach first. And it reminds me of when I was working with our local soccer team here, we had HRV monitors and one of the guys showed up as red like three days in a row. So instead of going to the coach, I asked him first. I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Are you feeling okay? Are you, you know, is training too difficult? He's like, no, he's like, my dog's super sick and I think he's going to die. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's those little conversations, as you alluded to, if you have the relationship and you have the trust, you start with the conversation with the athlete first. And then, like you said, if it's, if it's a team-wide thing, then maybe you talk to the coach about it. But just such a great point on your part. I love that. It's a difficult one. I mean, generally speaking, the working day of a soccer player and of most professional athletes is relatively short. Yeah. And the calibration point for a lot of young practitioners is purely and simply those three, four hours that they're in the training ground, in the, in the camp. Yep. These people are 24-hour athletes, and there are so many other external factors that will impact and influence on this this spreadsheet that the young practitioner is so proud of and is <laughs> collecting, and it, you know, it's totally focused on numbers and not on feelings and on the, the life of that individual. Yeah, it goes a lot deeper than just soccer, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so final question on this thread. I would love it if you would maybe give us some insight as to how things have evolved over the years. Or maybe here's a better way to put it. For people that aren't in elite sport and they don't see what it looks like nowadays, could you give them some idea as to the level of integration that's happening in sports science these days? Yeah. I mean, put very simply, when I started out, sports science was something that was very much on the periphery of sport, professional sport, because people in professional sport didn't know or understand what it was. And everybody was very wary of it. Do you know, the sports scientists didn't really understand quite how it was going to integrate. And it has taken time. And it's happened at different times and at different rates in different countries. I think sport has learned how to accept the value that it can bring. But I think more importantly, sports scientists have learned how to sell and deliver the value 
that that they can bring. And so, yeah, I mean, the journey in English English soccer has been 25 years, if you like. I had the good fortune to attend and present at a workshop that was run for NFL coaches about eight years ago. And I was there to present about uh, on, be, on behalf of a technology company in relation to the tracking of athletes. And so I had my presentation there and there were other guys there. There was a couple of Australians and one or two from across the US. But these guys were the S&C coaches from the NFL. And so at one point I started talking about heart rate monitoring. And it quickly became apparent that the concepts I was talking about in relation to what we call internal load at the time were totally alien to these people because that just wasn't part and parcel of the culture in the US in professional sports in NFL at the time. So 2013 was the 1997 that I'd walked into soccer in the UK. And soccer in the UK has taken this gradual gradient whereby adoption has, it's had a very bumpy road. <laughs> Whereas in the US with not just NFL, but with, with, with all of the major sports, the rate of adoption has been much greater because you initially you're importing people from Australia, the UK and Europe and having them put the building blocks in place. But you now actually in the US, you've got your own culture of people who are practicing sports scientists. They're not making all the mistakes that I made. And they're also pushing at open doors with the players and the athletes. So in 1997, when I went into football in the UK, yes, it said professional footballer on the job description of the players I was working with, but there were times when they were anything but professional. And I think for a whole host of reasons, and I'm sure I don't want to go into social media, but for a whole host of reasons, the athlete of today is a very different animal to the athlete of 20 years ago. They're much more demanding yeah. to begin with. They understand why they have to live the life they live to maximize their earning opportunity over what is a, is a very, very short career. And they're so open to embrace ideas and embrace anything that will help them spend more time on the field doing what they love, yeah. but also maximizing their success potential and their earning potential. For sure. For sure. Okay. So I want to switch gears just a little bit here because I know one thing that you're passionate about is coaching, education, and development. And this is something I agree wholeheartedly with. I feel like it's part of the deal. The longer you do this, it's not just educating the athletes, but educating other coaches as well. So one thing that you had mentioned before the show is, is how important you feel it is to build more all around coaches. So could you speak to that a little bit for me? Yeah, sure. So for the last few years, I've been a member of something that's called the Fitness Advisory Group with UEFA. So UEFA is the European Confederation for Soccer, and there are 54 nations that are part of UEFA. And the Fitness Advisory Group has a responsibility to try and provide the associations with relevant and contemporary information that they can then feed into the coaches in their 
in their association, either through coach education courses or CPD or the like. Now, one part of this is we run four or five workshops a year where seven or eight nations will come into the same place. They're called share workshops because, and that is exactly what they are. We act as facilitators or moderators for, it'll normally be the technical director from an association and it'll be the head of coach education and it may be the fitness coordinator from an association. And we'll address topics that relate to physical performance or fitness. And we will set up tasks and activities that encourage this sharing between them. But there'll also be this little bit of us delivering knowledge that we've gained through our own travels. So hopefully at the end of this, the coach educators will be armed with a package to take back into their own association and begin to try and upskill and acknowledge the people in their association. And then on the second level, you know, I mentioned a few of the countries that I've worked in. So I will run sessions. So if we take, for example, the Turkish association, which is, which is an interesting one because Turkey, in Turkey, very few people do speak English and I don't speak Turkish or any of the dialects over there. So it's done through interpreters, which adds, yes, it, it creates an added level of uh, challenge mm-hmm. to this. But we will run a workshop, and the guys who over there who put this thing together are amazing. But we'll run a workshop over a couple of days where I will again deliver a combination of theoretical and practical activities that will introduce the coaches in Turkey to some of the ways of thinking and working. I'll challenge their own thinking in order that hopefully they can arrive at a position where at the end of the day, it's about them going away, feeling a lot more comfortable and confident with ideas and concepts that they can embrace and comfortably integrate into their own day-to-day practice. Love it. Love it. So, One other topic that I want to touch on is this idea of looking at soccer through a multi-directional lens, which is something (laughs) I'd like to think that I've always trained my soccer players for. But regardless, why do you think so many coaches still put this just really kind of massive emphasis on linear speed development? And how do you get them to focus on the multi-directional aspects of the sport? So this. There's two elements to this, actually, Mike. First of all is the, I guess, the development of the multidirectional capability. And of late, to be fair, there is a lot more focus within professional football on deceleration and acceleration capabilities from a multidirectional perspective. So coaching of players to become more resilient and robust to the multidirectional nature of the sport. The interesting thing to me is, you know, we, we live in a time when every move that a player makes on a training field is monitored. And every professional soccer club, tiers one, two, three, and four, will be using tracking technologies. All of the NFL are using tracking technologies. For certain in basketball, they are. These, these are sports which more so in certain positions, but overall, they, are, they can be classed as multidirectional. But the people that use these tracking technologies will create, and these are the people who are creating the spreadsheets now, they create spreadsheets that are full of linear data. So if you're interested in high-speed running distances, 
high-speed running is performed linear or curvilinear yeah. at best. Yeah. Sprinting is definitely linear. The accelerations and decelerations that people report, if they're derived from GPS devices, generally speaking, they're linear. And people are making judgment calls on training practice and training interventions based on this data. Oh, we didn't do enough today. or we did too much today. Yeah, we might have done too much linear work. Well, let's have a look at the work that actually is a core part of the, of the game that we're playing. And so a bit of quite a bit of the work that I've been doing recently, you know, I do a bit of work with catapults and quite a bit of the work that we've been doing recently is to try and create metrics which much more effectively represent the non-linear, the multi-directional components of soccer in the first instance. But I've now got validation work going on in handball and basketball, for example, in indoor sports. And this is not using GPS data. This is going into the inertial sensors mm. in these uh, technologies. So it's accelerometers and gyroscopes. That's cool. I mean, so like when I got into this, and I, I think Dave Tinney was one of the guys that got me started in, in learning all of this. And I, I think it was he that quoted, I think there's something like, if you look at speeding up, slowing down, accelerations, decelerations, change of directions, in a professional soccer ma match, it goes from 1,400 to 1,600 times in a game. Now, I could be yeah. wrong. You're, you're the, the sports science guy, not me. But when you hear that number and you just think about how many times you're, you're picking up speed, slowing down, changing direction, it's massive. And just trying to prepare an athlete to compete and play at that level is quite the undertaking absolutely is the case okay we, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument in a 90 minute game of soccer a player might cover 900 meters high intensity running so that is anywhere between 14 kilometers per hour and uh, 25 kilometers per hour it doesn't take you long to cover that distance actually proportionally you're probably talking about 3% or 4% of the game yep. to cover those distances. So what exactly is going on in the rest of the game? <laughs> and what you will find is, is it's during the rest of the game where all of those um, stop, start, change of direction, change of, you know, it's all dynamic. It's change yeah. of something. So it could be change of velocity, but it's, it's change. And it's these things that I think from a physical perspective, we should have much more of a focus on. And I'm not saying don't focus on the linear components. Right. Of course, the linear components are important. And raw speed, raw acceleration is a key, key parameter for what we should be looking at developing and monitoring. But I think by not spending enough time quantifying and categorizing this nonlinear and dynamic aspect of the game, I think we're missing a trick and potentially, potentially in some cases, we're working our multidirectional conditioning programs on guesswork. Mm. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to make clear is, just like you alluded to, we're not discounting the value of the linear speed stuff. There's, there's value in that with regards to game performance, with regards to resiliency, keeping the hamstrings healthy, but just having a more all-encompassing approach to physical preparation, I think, is really critical. I couldn't agree more. And let, let me let me just flip this a little bit because 
I've had the good fortune to work. I counted for a presentation I did about a year ago. I've worked with over 30 coaches in soccer over, over the years. And all of these people are different. and They've all got different philosophies. I worked really interestingly. Recently, I worked with a coach who his own philosophy was based on time he'd spent at Real Madrid, working with some of the best players in the world. And with the greatest respect to the players we had in tier two English soccer, they weren't the best players in the world. Right. But his coaching was all based around in decision-making and overloading on the technical side of things. So the players performed so much of their training in small areas, which means that you've got to think quicker mm-hmm. and means that you've got to act and react quicker in a technical sense with the ball. But what it also means is you don't go anywhere. So right. training consisted a lot of mechanical work in small areas. And there was a lot of this turning and checking and changing and twisting and everything that goes on from a mechanical perspective. But actually, on in this instance, there wasn't enough of the locomotive aspect of the game. And we need both. We yes. need both sides. And our job as scientists is to try and work with coaches to encourage them to structure training so that we get adequate stimulus in the training. You know, in the early days, and for even for a lot of fitness coaches nowadays, they want to take the players away after training or before training and do isolated fitness work because they can be seen to be doing it. They're obvious then their value, they feel, is realized. For me, a well-structured football training program requires very little input from the fitness coach in peripheral work because all of the boxes are ticked with the ball in training. And then the coach is happy, the players are happy, and hopefully the fitness coach or the sports scientist should be happy as well. Yeah, great answer, man. Okay, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Chris Barnes one piece of advice, (laughs) what would it be? That's... That's a horrible question, <laughs> uh, if, if the truth be known, because, you know, going back to something that I said earlier, you have to get the balance right between information creation and information use. So data or information production and data application. I got that balance totally wrong for so long. I was creating so much information that really sat in a drawer, sat on a computer and never really informed practice. And if I had been honest with myself and I'd have taken the time to step back, I would have totally redressed that balance. And so for certain, that, that is the piece of advice that I would give to myself. But also I'd give it to young anybody today because I think people still are falling into that same trap. Okay. Can I ask a follow-up question to that then? What made you come to that realization? Was there a moment when you're just staring at a sea of spreadsheets and data and you're just like, what am I doing? Like, what what triggered that that switch to be flipped? Going from full-time employment in a club to self-employment consultancy meant that all of a sudden I was exposed to so many more end users, mm. players and coaches yeah. of the work that I, I did. And... It became very, very quickly apparent to me that, first of all, I needed a relationship with these people. But secondly, I needed a message. Because at the end of the day, if you're a consultant, people are paying you money to be around the place. And they want to know what they're paying for. Right. And if you're creating information that's going to sit in a drawer, a coach is not going to understand 
why exactly you're being kept on the payroll there. So you want that direct link to the coach. And so it doesn't take long to take that step back and think, okay, if I want that direct link to the coach, then I need to be giving him messages that he will appreciate, understand, and will impact on his or her practice. So it happened fairly quickly during the first three, four years of me working as a consultant. I've got to be honest, the other thing is, as you get older, the coaches look at you differently. So they know the other coaches that you've worked with. You get credibility in the same way that Brian Robson had. Credibility from who he was as a player. I've actually now got a little bit of credibility from who I've worked with as coaches and as other staff. So I can be a bit more relaxed about this. And I can actually sit and have conversations with these people in a different way on a different level and you know the whereas that sometimes obviously the coach is always king the coach sits above whoever is having that conversation with them you find a way to have that conversation on an even level yes and you know that you know at the end of the day you are charged with giving that person something that will hopefully help tomorrow be better than today if you like yeah yeah i love it man okay last but not least we've got our lightning round so five fairly short questions but your answer can be as long or short as you like so number one i'm sure this is not going to be easy for you but what's your career highlight so far as a coach probably when i was at middlesbrough middlesbrough had never won a major trophy in its history and under coach Steve McLaren we won what was the Carling Cup then which was a massive massive highlight for the club but it was also a a massive highlight for me yeah I love it I love it Mm -hmm. okay number two in doing uh my background research in preparation for the show I came across across the term cradle to the grave approach could you talk to me what that means (laughs) yeah yeah quite simply it's from when a player enters sport on an official level let's say so enters or associates with a a sports club so in soccer that can be as young as six or seven years old to the point at which they retire and that journey under normal terms would be let's say 25 years 28 years which is a long long time yes and it's a lot different than how we do things here in the states because a lot of times they might get associated with a club, but it's very rare they're going to be with that same club through the entirety of their career. So love it. Okay. Yeah. Number three, you've been successful across numerous sports. Is there anything specific you would attribute that success to? (laughs) I hope there's an element of humility in there. I Going into rugby, yeah, of course, I'd watched a lot of rugby uh, league, but I never played the game. And what you have got to do is to be straight with people about what you're not as well as what you are. I like That's great advice. Great advice. Mm -hmm. Number four, going along with that same question, have you ever gotten the, well, you're not an X guy and you can fill in the blank there. You're not a rugby guy or you're not a basketball guy. Not to my face. <laughs> yes. Not to my not to my face. I am sure 
that has been said on numerous occasions. Yeah, it's okay him saying that, but of course he doesn't really understand us. He doesn't understand our sport. But I hope, you know, and going back to the previous answer, I hope that I have never tried to give the impression that I have a greater understanding of that sport than I truly do. That's huge. That's huge. And, and you just you said it on the question before, but having that humility and being comfortable and being transparent and saying, I don't know everything about this sport. Again, I think in a lot of ways that helps you build relationships. You know, you talked about it up front. If you're if you're willing to be honest about what you do and don't know, I think that can go a long way for you and be an asset versus a drawback. You know, you know, and sorry to, no, no, go to ahead. Inter- interrupt there, Mike. I'm very fortunate in that. Obviously, a lot of my experience is in Premier League soccer, and people want to know about Premier League soccer. And yeah. so that helps to build the experience in that I've actually got some, I've got a story to tell. Yes. You know? Yes. I love it. I love it. Okay, last but not least, number five, what's next for Chris Barnes? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything. Do you know something? It, it, it kind of doesn't matter. What I'm doing at the moment is so, so enjoyable. But I have to say that every twist and turn in the last 25 years hasn't actually been planned. Opportunity arises when you least expect it. And I've learned not to try and plan too much and not to create expectation for opportunities that may arise because more often than not, they, they lead to nothing. But those that do emerge very often come out of nothing. So it's not a very good answer, I know, but I haven't, I haven't. <laughs> but it's true, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I really don't know. Yeah, hey, sometimes the best things in life happen when you least expect it, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, you've been amazing to chat with today. I feel like we've really just kind of scratched the surface, but uh, where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great things you're doing? I guess some of the usual places. I'm, I'm not hugely active on social media, but I am on Twitter. What would that be? Chris Barnes 60? We'll maybe. find it. We'll find it. If, uh, I, if you don't remember <laughs> it, we'll find it. I am on I am on Twitter. And of course, I do have a LinkedIn profile. And if anybody genuinely wants to ask me questions, my email address is chrisbarnes60 at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd welcome any questions that anybody has. That's very gracious of you. And again, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really great. No problem. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Mike. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Chris. Really hope you enjoyed it. I mean, just a wealth of knowledge. I love going to people like him that have been there for an extended period of time. They've seen the evolution of certain areas, whether it was Donovan Santis a couple weeks ago and his evolution within baseball, or Chris Barnes, who really pioneered sports science as we know it, and to see the changes that have gone on over the last 25 years. I think it lends us a tremendous amount of perspective and helps us better understand not only where we've been, but where we're going in the years to come. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do me one small favor. If you are not already, subscribe to the podcast. Doesn't matter where you like to go, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, wherever you download podcasts, go do this right now. It'll take about one second. Click the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.